So here we are, it's April 23rd, 2023, CE, Common Era, or April 23rd, 2023, AD. And either way you work it out, you come to the same point of time. Uh, So the world is counting time by Jesus is, is the point there. Let's have a uh, word of prayer and we'll begin. Dear Father, we are grateful to you for this day. Uh, We do thank you for all the ways you bless us beyond our knowledge. And what we know about is beyond comprehension. So we thank you for that. Uh, Father, for Jesus for the great sacrifice that he made and that you planned before the foundation of the earth. We give you thanks. We thank you for your patience and grace to us day by day as we fumble along. Uh, But we are thankful, Father, for the solution and for your covenant of promise with us based on the resurrection. And so we're grateful. Father, I know each of us, uh, we're aware of different ones who are in different kinds of struggles physically, spiritually, emotionally. And as we think about those people this morning, we lift them up to you and ask for your blessing and working in those situations. And we pray for hearts that will turn to you. We know that you are the answer. And so we give you thanks, Father, and we pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. So we're about to begin chapter 13 um, of Romans. I want to I mention uh, What Paul starts out with, uh, I want to mention chapter 12 very briefly uh, with one primary point. Uh, Well, a sub-point and then a point, maybe. But he says, therefore, in chapter 12, verse 1, and he bases the therefore upon all that he's covered previously in this letter and just looking at chapter 3, 24, and 25, how that Jesus is the payment for our sin. In Romans 5, 8, how that while we were helpless and sinners and unable to remedy our situation, that Jesus died for us, that God, in God's plan, he gave that propitiation and that sacrifice for us when we were utterly helpless to do anything. And then in 8, 15, and 17, he talks about how we are heirs and co-heirs with Christ, adopted as children and made heirs of God, the Father, the God, the creator of the universe, and co-heirs with his son, adopted into that family. And so Paul 
gets to the point of saying, therefore, what's our response to all of this, this great blessing that we have nothing to do with and totally incapable and helpless to uh, appropriate a gift? Romans three twenty three, the gift of God is eternal life. And so he says, therefore, in chapter 12, what's the conclusion of all this? What do we, where, where do we get to based on all of this amazing, unbelievable, and untouchable, uh, unattainable gifts to us? What's our response? He says, therefore, present your bodies as a living sacrifice. That's our response. That's our, he says, our reasonable service is but based on all that God the Father has done to present our lives as living sacrifices to Him. Anything else would be, I mean, that is not enough by any means. But that's our due response. That's what we should do is, my goodness, dear Father, look at what you have done for me that I don't deserve, and I know I don't deserve it. And you've done this for me. So Paul says, therefore, we should present our lives as living sacrifices to him. Jesus' people. That's who we're to be. It's interesting that he puts it in this section of the letter because he's going to get to some stuff that we're going to be looking at today that are really going to be hard to take in by those he's writing to. Again, just to briefly restate, the, the Jews are living and non-Jews are living under the yoke of Roman tyranny, of the Roman Caesars. And they are not benevolent dictators. It is a, going against the government in the smallest of ways is unthinkable. And particularly for Christians, if it is known that you are following someone else rather than Augustus, any of those guys, your life is at risk. It's not a good time to be a Christian. And so he says in verse 1 of 13, let every person be subject to the governing authorities. And boy, boy, this just doesn't sit very well with his audience. None of them, Jewish or non-Jewish, really are enjoying the Roman rule that they are under, the tyranny that they are under. Uh, and particularly the Jews, the Jewish state that Paul comes from back in that area, uh, they want the Roman yoke off their backs. And so Jesus came along and 
the masses responded to him, but the leaders of the Jewish nation did not because he was not the Davidic Messiah that they anticipated. They wanted a general to come in and restore their autonomy, throw off the Roman yoke, and reestablish the great kingdom of David. And Jesus was not that leader. And he said, I'm, my kingdom's not of this world. It's, I'm not going to lead the revolution you're wanting. And that just didn't go over with the political leaders who were the priests and all the ruling hierarchy, the influential hierarchy uh, of Judaism there in Jerusalem was not going over well. So when Paul says in 13 verse 1, be subject to the governing authorities, that is going to, that rubs against the very uh, core of their sentiment. We want rid of these pagans. We want rid of these tyrants. And that's not what Jesus offered. And that's not what Paul is saying here in Romans 13, verse 1. He's saying be subject to them. Mm. Uh, I think one of the first big pictures that we draw from that is that God wants people to be under government. Some sort of an orderly society where people are compliant with an organized governing authority. I mean, that's the general idea. And uh, the Jews are wanting to rebel against that. And Jewish Christians are not enjoying Roman rule either. They all want it gone. Uh, so when Paul says that in verse 13, in verse 1, he says that after he has told them in chapter 12, Richard, you nearly had your hand up and I nearly called on you, but you didn't go all the way up, so I didn't call on you. Okay. But go ahead. Uh, when you say Hashem wants us to be under some kind of governing authority. I think so. I believe his best choice is him. Yes. But when Israel said, oh, hey, we want a king, what did he say? He says, the people have rejected me, 1 Samuel chapter 8. Samuel will say, oh, they've rejected me, and he says, no, no, they rejected me. rejecting me, yes. not you. Yeah. So I think Hashem's first choice is that we be under subjection to him. Certainly. And since, we're, and since we've gotten to the point of governmental authorities now, he's saying, also, with me, I'm allowing this, therefore, I'm allowing it, this is what you need to be in subjection. Yeah, yeah. Uh, the obvious point, the Lord wants us in subjection to him first, obviously. And since, but a lot of people don't recognize that authority, and so he's saying, and also, by the way, you have a human authority, a governing authority, and you should be subject to that. Jeff. Know that the United States of America military forces swear allegiance to a piece of paper in the only country in the world that does that? 
I didn't know that. The Amer the, we're the only country in the world the American military swears allegiance to a piece of paper. to the Constitution as a document rather than to a person. All people are going to be fallible and have many problems. Um, that's exactly right. Thank you. I've, I've known people who just won't do the Pledge of Allegiance, Christians who will not say the Pledge of Allegiance, uh, feeling that their only allegiance is to God. Now, in their behalf, I will say they're not zealots, they're not fomenting rebellion, but in their conscience, they can't say the Pledge of Allegiance. They feel like they should only say allegiance to one. I, I don't agree with that. I love my country. I love the country I'm in, but uh, people, a lot of, some people, maybe quite a few, have that position. Uh, but any, at any rate, was there anything else? At any rate, Eric, yes. So I think there's a risk with how we interpret 13.1. Okay. I know many folks that will interpret that as being absolutely passive and uh, disengaged from government. Yeah. And so we just, you know, we're not involved in that. We're just under the authority of that government and we let it roll. But even Paul invoked his rights as a Roman citizen. If you didn't hear that, say we. Uh, this passage is not teaching that we should pull away from all things political; that we should not uh, participate in our rights as citizens; uh, that we should be engaged for for good things and uh, voting and supporting people who honor God's authority. I pray often, Lord, please give us leaders who respect Your authority who are people of integrity and who have the wisdom to govern. Uh, that's a prayer I think I would say we should all pray. It's not a political prayer. It's a, a prayer for the Lord to exert his influence in the affairs of men as he has done through history from time to time. Of course, there's free moral agency, but I would wish that... that we would ask for and support people who honor God's authority in our lives. And we should not pull back. I was talking years, many years ago with my buddy Robertson back in West Monroe, and we were talking about voting. An election was coming up, and he said, I'm not voting. It doesn't matter. I said, Phil, 
It does matter. You should do what Eric just said. Only I didn't use Eric's name. I didn't know him at the time. But that was the point I made to him. Well, and by the way, uh, for the last 20 years, he's become very active politically, and he is voting. So I think we should participate. Um, You know, this phrase, uh, the next phrase in that, um, for there is no authority, verse 1, there's no authority except from God and those that exist have been instituted by God. And people might say, my goodness, this pagan government is instituted by God? Are you, are you kidding? They're clearly anti-God. Caesar wants us to worship him and not God, the Father. But it says uh, the, the government that exists is instituted by God. And so why... Um, how, how could that be? Well, I would, and we look at the world today, and there are a lot of governments that are very corrupt. We can start with our own and just look around the world, and there are failings everywhere. And some are very hostile to Christianity. And, of course, look at communist China. Very anti-worship of a supreme being. Uh, I go back and I would say, look at uh, the Babylonians back in 5 and 600 B.C. Sometimes God uses corrupt leaders to accomplish his purposes or discipline. And so he uses Nebuchadnezzar in 586 B.C. to take Israel into captivity because they had turned away. They just, as the Lord said back way back when he brought them out of Egypt, right at the very beginning, and watched their behavior just over a short period of time, and he tells Moses, this is a stiff-necked people. They can't be guided. They won't take guidance. They want to pull their own way. They're stiff-necked. You can't turn them. An early observation, and it just snowballs through time, up and down, up and down, up and down, but the ups and downs are on a downward trend until he brings Nebuchadnezzar in in 586. Ezekiel, I had noted, uh, put in, in, uh, in my notes here, Ezekiel 16, tells Israel, uh, you're an adulterous people. And he says, and your sister Judah is just as bad, the two kingdoms, northern and southern kingdom. Adulterous people. Then Jeremiah picks up on the same idea in Jeremiah 3. Israel went up and uh, played the harlot on every high place, on every hill. They put up altars, they put up idols, they worshiped foreign gods. And then finally in Jeremiah 19, verse 3 and 4, Jeremiah says, I am bringing punishment upon this people and upon this place. I'm bringing punishment. I've had it. So God uses pagan nations sometimes to execute his judgments 
on rebellious nations. Uh, that was the case with Israel. And then in Jeremiah 25, Jeremiah says now he's also going to judge the Babylonians for their evil and, and unrighteousness. So they don't get off, but he would use them as a rod against Israel and they will receive their own punishment, Rick. If I understand Paul's letter right, he's writing it at a time where a pagan Rome is, is in power and Jew and Gentile are somewhat rifted apart in this letter from Paul. But it comes out to be, if history presents itself properly, it's prophetic in some ways because Nero is coming. And Nero is worse than Nebuchadnezzar. He is afflicting on both Jew and Gentile, mostly Christians at the time. Um, but he's, his letter is trying to draw both together mm -hmm. because God knows what's going to happen. Mm -hmm. Maybe Paul has seen it, not as a prophet uh, or a prophecy, but he's calling them together because they know that God knows together that we are much stronger as a portion. When Nero steps into power, it becomes problematic for everybody concerned when they're looking towards God. Mm -hmm. uh, the handwriting's on the wall that all of this is coming. Um, and yes, uh, we're greater in unity than in disunity. And of course, he spends much of the earlier part of the letter telling his audience there that he's writing to is that God has joined Jew and Gentile together into one. Uh, that's, that's what Romans 9, 10, and 11, uh, much of that is about. But it goes all the way back to the third third and fourth chapters as well he's, he's saying it's not just one nation anymore it's I'm writing to a mixed group of Jew and Gentile believers one in Christ Jesus is the propitiation for all sin Romans 3 24 and 25 what Paul has done up to this point he's been talking about how how to live between trusters how do you have a relationship between Trusted, Jewish and Gentile trusters. Then he talks about how to have relationships between trusters and non-trusters. Now he's talking about how to have a relationship with trusters and the government. So he's basically covering every aspect of our life. How are you to live a life dedicated to Hashem? Mm -hmm. The point of this letter is to bring Jews and Gentiles together under Jesus to be together, to trust each other. And then he, then he particularly goes into how to live that Eric was covering last two weeks ago, chapter 12, about how we live as Christians. What's our mindset? What's our attitude? And now in 13, it goes into how do you live with the government? And uh, I would say, uh, you know, uh, in Jesus' teachings, uh, Jesus nowhere uh, encouraged or taught to rebel against governing authorities, even the pagan ones. He said, pay to Caesar what's his, pay to God what's his. Uh, 
Jesus' life, his teachings, his words were as leaven in culture and society, changing hearts. Uh, his words were as leaven, not as dynamite. Don't disrupt and overthrow and rebel and create more harm and violence. That's not what he, he told Peter, put up your sword. He didn't resist arrest when he was arrested. Uh, so his words were as leaven, not as dynamite. And Jesus himself prophesied, if you will, that the Roman destruction was coming. Uh, you look at Matthew 22. Well, let's look at it. Romans, uh, Matthew 22. Let's just turn over there real quickly. Um, first nine verses of Matthew 22, uh, Jesus spoke to them in parables saying, the kingdom, this is verse one, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who gave a wedding feast for his son and sent his servants to call those who were invited to the wedding. But they would not come. And he sent other servants saying, tell those who are invited, I prepared the, uh, my dinner, my oxen, my fat calves have been slaughtered. Everything is ready. Come to the feast and they paid no attention and went off one to his farm, another to his business, and the rest seized his servants. That would be the prophets. This is a parable. Seized his messengers, his servants, treated them shamefully and killed them. Verse 7, the king was angry and sent his troops and destroyed those murderers and burned their city. There is the destruction of Jerusalem. Jesus is telling a parable that is paralleling the day uh, in a story of what's happening in their country. He tells Israel, you kill the prophets, you stone those have, that are sent to you. That's what Israel's done with God's messengers. That's what's depicted here in this parable. And so verse 7, the king, God sent his troops. Who are his troops? He's using the Roman army just as he used Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonians in 586 B.C. They were his army, his instrument to accomplish his purpose of punishment and discipline to the Jews who were rebellious. And that's what is going to happen here. His troops destroyed those murderers, burned their city, then in verse 8, he said to his servants, the wedding feast is ready, but those invited were not ready. Therefore, go into the main roads and invite the wedding to the wedding feast as many as you find. That's us. That's everybody. So go out into the world and invite. The feast is ready. Come to the feast. That's what we're doing. As Christians, that's what we do. We're coming to the feast. We're invited into God's feast because those that were invited wouldn't come. And so he brought the Romans in, A.D. 70, and destroyed the city, destroyed Jerusalem, destroyed the temple, destroyed the Jewish theocracy, if you will. Still no temple, no sacrifice, no priests. They don't even know their genealogies. Not the records in, I would debate that, but we don't have time to debate that. There's still, whether the, how much they know of the genealogies or not is sort of beside the point. There's no priesthood. There's no Levitical priesthood and no temple today and no sacrifice. Judaism is not the same Judaism today as it was 
in the first century and before that. It's a different animal. So Jesus prophesied this was coming. Verse 20, uh, Matthew 24, I had, I had noted here about the temple. He, after, in chapter 23 of Matthew, he told the, the Pharisees, you're hypocrites, you're a brood of vipers. I mean, that's about as low a name as you can call someone, a group. You're a brood of vipers. You're hypocrites. And then he says in chapter 24, this place, this temple is going to be destroyed and not one stone will be left upon another. That's the destruction of the temple that's coming in about 37 years from the time he said that. So Rome was used as God's instrument against the rebellious Jews. They had had their time up to here. It's full. I'm, I'm full of your rebellion. And we're opening up the Messiah came in the fullness of time, the scripture tells us, and God opens up salvation, the message of the Messiah to all people. Jesus, Matthew 28, go into all the world and preach my name and what, who I am and what I've done to all nations. Mark 16, Matthew 28. You know, why would God allow uh, pagan nations and uh, how, wh how would, why would he institute certain governments? Uh, there's two or three things at play here. One, uh, he still allows free moral agency and people have the freedom to choose, and some choose some very bad directions. And one thing, uh, the Lord hopes when we observe corrupt and evil and dark government and dark behavior, he hopes that people will look at that and see that and say there's got to be a better way and look for the answer and turn to God. Romans 2, 4 says that God's goodness... Pardon me while I adjust my gear. God's goodness and patience are given to lead you to repentance. He's hoping for repentance. He's hoping his goodness and his gifts will lead you to say, thank you, God. Especially when we look at the mess that human governments and darkness and evil bring on people and say, there's got to be a better way than this. This is horrible. He hopes that people will turn to him from darkness. Jesus, you know, in Jesus' trial, John 19, Verse 11, Pilate's questioning Jesus, and Jesus is not answering all of the questions Pilate is throwing at him. And then Pilate says in 19, about verse 10, he says, don't you uh, understand that I have the power of life over you and you're not answering me? Don't you know who I am? And then Jesus' response to him in verse 11, he says, you would have no power at all unless it was given to you from above. So Jesus is uh, saying in John 19 what Paul is saying right here, no authority is established 
unless it's instituted by God. He tells Pilate, you wouldn't have any authority over me unless it was given to you from above. So verse 2, 35 minutes there on verse 1, we're, we're churning right along here. Verse 2. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. So are we authorized to take arms and rebel against a corrupt government? Uh, the short answer to that is no. No, we're not authorized to do it. That's not our purpose. Our purpose is to carry God's message of love and redemption to the world. That is our prime directive in the words of Captain Picard or one of those guys. Ken, ask Ken Whitelaw. He'll, he can straighten you out on who said that. We can know this government is bad. It's terrible. It's corrupt. It's horrible. Our rights are not being uh, observed and we're being denied our rights. Therefore, we're going to rebel. No. No. That's not your prime directive. Go into all the world and preach my gospel. He that believes and is baptized will be saved. That's our prime directive. I'm not to be known, and I don't think it was by mistake that Jesus grabbed a zealot and made a zealot one of his 12 apostles, disciples, apostles. There's a higher authority than the governing authority, and you have a higher purpose in life. Go ahead now, be politically involved. You should, I think. Vote, do your civic duty. Take up arms and create uh, civil disobedience and rebellion? No. That's not your purpose. Not my purpose. So these Christians were living under terrible, tyrannical rule, and he tells them here in, ver in verse 2 of 13, live under it. Be a Christian. Live under it. Do not take up arms. That's the message. Peter says the same thing, by the way, and notice Peter's language in 1 Peter chapter 2. Be subject for the Lord's sake. Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human instituted, whether to the emperor as supreme. Peter, are you kidding me? Yeah, he says be subject to the corrupt, tyrannical, pagan Roman Caesar as supreme. Be subject or to governors sent by him. We have a higher purpose. Richard and then Larry. Quickly, please. Is there any place for uh, civil disobedience? And, you know, Peter said we ought to obey God rather than men. Our country was born out of civil disobedience. Our country was born out of civil disobedience. We ought to obey God rather than men. Does that mean revolt if necessary? I don't think so. Because he's saying right here, don't resist that authority. So what's he saying? Live your Christian life. Obey God rather than men. So if the government says to you, obey, uh, worship me, 
say, no, I can't worship you. I'm worshiping Jesus. Okay, we're going to throw you into jail. Okay. I'm going to jail. Take up arms. Mm. I'd have trouble with that one. Richard, then Kathy. Quick, quick, quick. In Jewish writing, it says, whoever behaves insolently toward the king is like someone who behaves insolently toward the Shekinah, which is the glory of Hashem. Glory of God. Kathy. Some of the apostles, though, did disobey by continuing to teach Jesus. Because we ought to obey God rather than men, they continued to share the message. But they did not rebel against, uh, there was no effort to overthrow the government. That's not what they were about. They were teaching, preaching God's message, and that still goes on today against government wishes. There is a greater directive we have, but we have it to carry out in peace. Yeshua got really angry when Peter cut off the ear. Jesus was, he told Peter, put up your sword when Peter whacked the guy's ear. Well, that's a precision strike. And you talk about precision strikes today. Well, I bet that was luck. <laughs> I bet he was dead. I've seen gunfighters shoot off an earlobe. I know one of Festus's cousins went after him just to shoot down the hangy down part, shoot off that part. Precision, them Hagens, Hagens. Yeah, I think you're right. I think it was luck. I think I just chased a rabbit somewhere back into the briar patch. You've never heard of Festus Hagen, have, have you, you young people? Yeah, I'm looking at you. <laughs> He's got a puzzled look on his face. Okay, quickly, I say quickly after I digress, I'm sorry. Verse 3 and 4, basically says God gives the government authority to punish the evildoers that's authority for police, military action as needed. That's not my role as a citizen. I will protect my family if I have the opportunity and the option. I feel like that's part of providing for my own, not only to provide food, clothing, and shelter, but to provide safety and protection if I can in my home. I'm reminded of the Amish story, uh, the old country farmer was awakened in the night by some noise he could see against uh, the moon's silhouette a figure had just raising up the window and had stepped into his bedroom and it's all dark but he sees this guy's silhouette he reaches over grabs his long gun and stands up in the dark and says pardon me neighbor I would do thee no harm but thou art standing where I'm about to shoot. Uh, I think we have maybe an obligation to protect our family. Now, if the government is coming in to arrest us for being Christians, it's not a crime being committed, but it's an arrest because of your faith, of your Christian activity. I don't think I have authority to resist that. I think I go to jail is what I do. I'm called to peace. Look at verse uh, 5 and 6. He says, pay your taxes. Pay your taxes. That's taxes going to a corrupt government. They don't deserve my money. They're corrupt. Pay your taxes. 
There's not a, you know, I guess we could figure out ways to argue against any scripture we would read. Uh, that's not the right heart. I mean, some scriptures are just clear. They're just clear. This is one of the clear ones. Verse 6, about your taxes. And then he says in 7 and 8, pay to all what is owed to them, taxes to whom taxes are owed, revenue to whom revenue, respect to whom respect, honor to whom honor, and owe no one anything except to love each other. Love each other. Love each other. The message. Love your neighbors yourself. Verse 9, for the authority, for the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not commit murder, you shall not steal, not covet. The commandments are summed up in this word, love your neighbors yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor. Therefore, love is fulfilling the law. So the first four of the Ten Commandments are to love God. The next six of the Ten Commandments, five through ten, are to love your fellow man. Don't do harm to your fellow man's property or his life, and so on and so forth. And Jesus said, what are the greatest commandments? He said, love God first and love your fellow man as yourself. That's just a summary of the Ten Commandments. The first four are to love God, honor God, no other gods before me. The next six are to love your fellow man. Eric. In that order, keep them in that order. Love God first, love your neighbor in that order. Absolutely. Now the the rub gets in our day-to-day lives when our neighbor does something we don't like. And they built their fence. It is clearly one foot over on my property. I am not going to stand for that. Well, how long's your driveway? Well, it's 16 feet wide. So they put their fence over there one foot over. So how wide is it now? Well, it's 15 foot wide. Well, can't your car, how how wide's your car or truck? Well, it's six and a half feet wide. So do you have room to get your vehicle up and down your driveway? Oh, sure, I got a lot of room. I even got shrubs on both sides. So is your neighbor's fence really hurting you? Is it worth getting mad and having a big fuss over? Probably not. probably not worth it. Are we peacemakers or not? I mean, I'm not saying just be abused, but I'm saying, you know, folks, come on. Do we have to be upset and angry over every little thing that comes along? Is it really worth it? Is it worth killing our influence over? Love is fulfilling the law. Okay, we got four minutes, so help me finish out here. Here we go, verse 11. You know the time, the time, the hour has come for you. Wake from your sleep. So there's some issues there in Rome, in the church there. 
are not quite on the ball. He's telling them to wake up. You know, what happens while we're asleep? Danger can approach while we're asleep and we don't even know it. It can be standing right beside us while we're asleep and we don't know it. Why? Because we're asleep. Awake from our sleep, he says. He tells them. Same to us. Different kinds of sleep that we deal with. One that we deal with is the sleep of cultural dilution. Cultural dilution. We've gone fast asleep with regard to our culture. We've gotten used to it. Dress, language, on and on and on and on. Values, cultural dilution. God's directions being clear and precise. For this cause shall a man leave his parents and cling to his wife, and they shall be married. Now our Supreme Court has said, well, you can marry anything you want to marry, basically. Cultural dilution. A lot of parents are asleep, I'm afraid, while their kids with their iPads and their phones are being deluded and disillusioned by the culture, by the values of the culture, and the parents are not even aware of all the stuff they're looking at and watching day in and day out on these devices. Fast asleep. You're responsible for your kids and how much freedom you give your kids to do this or that. Take that very seriously, please. Because the stuff they're watching on the iPad and on the phone is not godly 99% of the time. It is a message that goes against God's authority and against God's morals 99% of the time. That's not a scientific study. That's Gary. I don't think I'm far off. Let's not be asleep under the sleep of cultural dilution. Solomon did it. Wisest man to ever live. He married all these women from different cultures and the next thing you know by the end of his life he's putting up high places. He's putting up idols all over the kingdom. And the scripture says Solomon's led away by his wives. Didn't stay true to God. Wisest man ever. Led away by cultural dilution. There's a sleep of, I don't know if it's assumption or presumption, maybe it's presumption, but the sleep that says, I'll do it later, I'll get to it later, I'll change later, I've got a bad habit, I need to get rid of it, I'll change it later, I've got time. The rich man said, I'm building my barns, I'm telling myself, sit back and relax, eat and be merry the rest of your life. And God says, you fool. <laughs> it's over, dude. Your, your, your presumption that you had a lot of time was mistaken. Every day is God's day for us to live for him. Not later. Start right now. Start yesterday. Last point. Uh, my time is up. The sleep of uh, distraction. Just distracted, maybe distracted by career, 
distracted by hobbies, distracted by this, distracted by that, by this, by that, by this, by that, in ad finitum. Distraction. And kept away from the prime priority thing I should be. Wrong focus. The wrong focus. The sleep of distraction. So he says in verse 12, cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. Make some decisions. Make some decisions. There's some things that you know, he tells the Romans, that you need to get rid of, that you need to change, some priorities that you need to reestablish. Make some decisions and cast off what's dark and put on what's light. That's going to take two actions. Amen. Carry on. Thank you for your time. Hey, I'm Eddie White, the senior minister for the Eastside Church of Christ. Sure want to thank you for joining us today on our podcast. I hope today's message was indeed a blessing to you. I'd like to invite you to browse our website at eastsidesprings.com to get more information or to contact us. And as always, we indeed welcome you to join us for our worship service in Colorado Springs as we seek to live out Jesus' mission of making disciples of all nations.